They're nonsensical. They act upon things that are not in the realm of reality or delusions. They're delusions. I'll just give you an example of one. I'm not going to say who it was. You'll see it next week if you come to my Sunday school class. There's a preacher who, who's very popular, one of the most popular churches in the country today. And in the midst of his conversation, he's talking about, he's about, you know, you don't have anything on me. I, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in communion. I am in, a, am in a relationship with God. I am God Almighty, is what he actually says. He claimed to be God. And he's talking about, it's in you. It's in you. Everything, God is in you. And if God is in you, then you're everything he is. What? You're saying you're God? I think there was a there was a certain serpent back in the garden that tried to start using that little little line with uh, Adam and Eve. You'll be like God. It's a lie. I mostly got my voice back, uh, so we're doing pretty good today. So if you got your Bibles, turn to the book of Jude as we continue. Let's look at what Jude is showing us and telling us. You know, last week we talked about... I don't know. Last week we talked about... Jude was showing us some... Looking at some rebellions that where, where God stepped in and, and he had to actually pronounce justice... And, and deal justice out. We saw the flood. We, we saw the rebellion of the sons of God. We saw Sodom and Gomorrah. Our tendency sometimes when we look at these historical events that happen is to look at them only from a historical perspective. We look at them and we say, well, that was then. What does it have to do with us now? In the historical context, we have a tendency to miss the whole point that Jude is trying to make, that God judges. And God is a righteous judge. He has the right to judge. He created all things. He condemns. He punishes those who rebel against his will. So Jude is now going to continue in this. and He's going to apply this to what's going on in the church. In Jude 8, here's what he begins with. He says, yet, in like manner, these people also, and he's talking about the false teachers and those who cause dissension within the church. He says, these people also, relying on their dreams... Defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme of the glorious ones. Now, one of the things we have to realize is that all authority originates with God. Whether it is authority in the church, whether it's authority in the home, whether it's authority in government, it all, it all originates with God. Leaders who are in authority must first submit to the authority of God. I must submit to God's authority. In, in, as a father, I must submit to God's authority. I must do be a, fa- a good father according to biblical principles. As a pastor, there are certain things I must do. I must take care of the flock. I must exegete scripture correctly. And whether we are pastors or teachers, you know, we're going to be held at a higher standard. I'm going to be held at a higher standard because I'm a pastor. And I'm okay with that. I'm good with that. Because I try my best to exegete Scripture correctly and to teach what the Scriptures say. Leaders of pastors, the denominations, they are also 
going to be held at a higher standard. Even if they're not a pastor in a church, they are still going to be held at a higher standard because they are a leader. You, as an employer, if you have employees, you are going to be held at a different standard than your employees because you have people working for you. How do you treat them? Your neighbors. How do you treat your neighbors? We must submit and we must use our leadership in a way that is godly and honors God. However, false teachers, they reject the divine authority of God. And what they're going to do is they're going to assert themselves as their own source of power and authority. This is not uncommon in the church today. I was planning on showing you some videos, but I'm, I'm, if, if you come to my Sunday school class next week, I think I'm going to show some videos of some teaching that is meant to tickle people's ears. It's not exegeting. Exegeting means I take what the scripture says, I take what it is in its context, what it meant to the original author, what the original author intended, what the people around it thought about it because of the worldview, and I bring that out. I exegete scripture. I, I bring, it out of, bring it out of there. The way that a lot of people do is they exegete scripture, which means I take what the world is like and I, I imprint it on top of scripture and try to make scripture, mold scripture to what the, the culture is like today. That's, that's wrong. That's false teaching. Or, as I said before, there's narcissists where I take me and I implant myself into Scripture. Say, that's me. I'm David. I'm Joshua. It's wrong. It's narcissistic. But these false teachers are dreamers. And it doesn't, he's not, Judas isn't saying that they, they have these dreams about things and, and they act upon them. What it is he's talking about is that they're, they're nonsensical. They act upon things that are not in the realm of reality or delusions. They're delusional. I'll just give you an example of one. I'm not going to say who it was. You'll see it next week if you come to my Sunday school class. There's a preacher who, who's very popular, one of the most popular churches in the country today. And in the midst of his conversation, he's talking about, he's about, you know, you don't have anything on me. I, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in communion. I am in, a, I'm in a relationship with God. I am God Almighty, is what he actually says. He claimed to be God. And he's talking about, it's in you. It's in you. Everything, God is in you. And if God is in you, then you're everything he is. What? You're saying you're God? I think there was, a, there was a certain serpent back in the garden that tried to start using that little, little line with uh, Adam and Eve. You'll be like God. It's a lie. Do we have Christ in us? Yes, we have Christ in us. Are we gods? By no means. By no means are we gods. These false teachers, they've rejected God's truth and they indulge in their false teachings. And, and in the process of doing that, what it does it do? It inflates their egos and it fuels a rebellion. They use their tongues to blaspheme against God, arrogantly asserting that they are autonomous. They are gods. They are little, it's a little God theology that's going on right now. They throw their assumed power around without any regard to what the consequences are. Blaspheming is more than just profaning God's word and God's name. It also includes taking God's word in a way that is, that is not exactly, it's very lightly taken. It's not honoring God's word. 
In fact, if you look at if you look at the if you look at the, the Hebrew word for you know the, the Ten Commandments that says the commandment says thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, the word take in Hebrew is carry. You, thou shalt not carry the name of the Lord thy God in vain, which means don't do things proclaiming to be of God that are evil. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. And the amazing thing about those that do that today is that they are clueless that they're doing anything wrong. As believers, we are tasked with ensuring that our actions do not blaspheme God, but even more so, that our actions don't cause others to blaspheme God. Paul talks about this in Romans 2. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. So if you're you're obeying the law, doing everything it tells you to do, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to a blind, a light to those who are in darkness. So you're a believer, you, you, you believe you're following God's word, and you are influencing those around you, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge of truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? As I've always said, guys, this sermon, this sermon is more for me than it is for you. I learn more from writing my sermons than I probably communicate to everybody. He says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You will say that one must not commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. So don't do anything or say anything that's going to cause someone else. Because for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among Gentiles because of you. Now, when we think of blasphemy, usually what we think of, and the question, probably one of the most common questions I get is, Pastor, what is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? What is that? Because we're all afraid to do that because that is the unforgivable, quote, unforgivable sin. And the one place, and, and we have to go to Scripture, we see what Jesus says. This is in the book of Mark. What had happened was, Jesus had been performing miracles. And of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they weren't happy about it because it wasn't because, it was mostly because Jesus was pulling people away from them. Their popularity was dropping and Jesus' was increasing. They were jealous. So what they say is, well, it's by the power of Beelzebub that he does these things. By the power of Satan, he's doing these things. And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever, whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's the deliberate rejection of God's work. They were deliberately rejecting what they saw was happening, saying that it wasn't God doing it, but it was Satan. And that is unforgivable because it's intentional. It's intentional. You can't stumble into blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's intentional. Even the Archangel Michael, whose name actually means who is like God, 
He knew his place. He knew his, where he was supposed to be. In Jude 9, he, uh, Jude talks about this. He says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. He didn't say, I rebuke you. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, the conflict between um, Satan and Michael over Moses' body, it it remains shrouded in mystery. It's nowhere in the Old Testament, but we see it here in Jude. So apparently, it was either a tradition of that time during the first century, or it was in the writings of some of the Jewish scholars. But following Moses' death, the Lord God personally buried him. We know about this because it's in Deuteronomy 34. God, that, that God concealed the location of Moses' body. Why? Why would God conceal the location of Moses' body? Well, it was because chances are that if the Israelites knew where Moses' body was, they would have made it a shrine. Look what we did, look what Constantine did in the first, after, uh, it was in the first century, after, after Christ, I mean, his mother goes and she makes a shrine everywhere. You, you could go today, you have to go into the, the, uh, the Palestinian section, but you can go to Bethlehem and you can see where supposedly where Jesus was born. And what is it? It's this church. And you go down all these steps and there's this hole in the ground and that's where Jesus was born. There's, there's places, we, we, we venerate places. That's what the Israelites would have done when they were in the desert. You know, they, they, they had sinned, so God sends these snakes and the snakes are biting them and they're dying. And so they cry out to God, and Moses cries out to God, and God tells Moses, or God tells Moses to, to build a bronze snake and to put it on a pole. And whenever the Israelites will look to the pole, they will be healed. So they do that, which is great. But over time, what we find out later is they begin to worship the snake. They begin to worship the pole with the snake on it as part of, as their God. It's what we do. But God concealed the location to kind of keep the Israelites from venerating it and probably keep them from falling into idolatry. But the scriptures affirm that no man knew the whereabouts where Moses' grave was at. Which implies that maybe Satan did. He's not a man. He possesses the authority in the realm of the dead. He might be aware and be attempted. He attempted to seize Moses' body for his own purposes. Who knows? But Michael, he did not rebuke him directly. He, he Instead, he entrusted God to rebuke him. May the Lord rebuke you. I'm not going to, but the Lord may. He exercised caution, and that's what we need to do also. We need to recognize that Satan is a formidable enemy. He's a liar. He has formidable power. And even though we are partakers in the victory of Christ, we can't presume our own authority. It's interesting, there were a group of men who were trying to exercise a demon out of a person. This is in Scripture. And as they try, they said, well, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, and the demon said, I know Jesus, I know Paul, I don't know you. And then it came and it beat the living daylights out of those guys. We can't presume anything. We must be careful. We must be sure of what we're doing. We, don't, we can't presume any additional authority than what we're given. 
We must remain vigilant against the schemes of the devil because what is happening is that these people, these false teachers, and and today the false teachers in the church, they're like wild animals. Jude echoes the thoughts of Peter here in verse 10. Of Jude 10, he says, But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now, we love to think that our, our pets, you know, reason things out. It's mostly instinct. It really is. My cats, I mean, we have three cats, so we get a lot of exposure to what animals do. And so, and, and we have chickens too, which is a wholly, completely different perspective. But it's all instinct. Our cats love us, and, and there, has, there is personality within the cats, but... It's not, it's not this deep reasoning because they're ignorant. They really are to the things. They're, they're, their focus is on you know, eating, sleeping, being petted. Feed me, give me a place to rest, and pet me when I want you to pet me as far as cats go. Peter, in Second Peter says, But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed by, in their destructions. So these false teachers, like animals, live by instinct. And when we rebel against God, what are we doing? We are sinking to the lowest animal instinct. And he goes on, Jude does in verse 11, to condemn these false teachers. He says, woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir, and perished in Korah's rebellion. Here we have, again, remember we had, we had the flood, we had Sodom and Gomorrah, we have the falling, fallen angels, their rebellion. Well, now he's going to give three more. He's going to talk about Cain. He says, woe to them. It carries this sense of impending judgment. In, in, in Revelation it says, woe, woe, woe. does it three times. Anytime scripture does say something three times, it's very important. Woe is bad. Woe is twice as bad. And woe is three times as bad. So woe, woe, woe. But he says, woe unto them. It's this, this idea of impending sorrow and lamentation. This, this kind of shows the seriousness of their sins. And that these individuals are, 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 are going by their base instinct. And he's using these Old Testament examples, Jude is, of, of those who rebelled against God's authority. And they face the consequences of their actions. The first one he talks about is Cain. Well, Cain was the, the brother of Abel. And they were supposed to give a sacrifice. So Abel takes a young lamb and, and he kills it according to what God had told them to do. Abel goes to his, his garden, picks a bunch of vegetables, and puts it on the altar. And Cain's is rejected, and Abel's is not. And we think, well, that's not fair. Well, yes, it is, because God didn't tell Cain, go, give me your vegetables, and put them on the altar. He says, give me a blood sacrifice. So what could Cain have done? He should have gone to his brother, traded him, or asked him for a lamb. But he didn't. He defiled God's, Cain defied God's authority in matters of salvation by rejecting the prescribed method of sacrifice. Instead of following God's way of forgiveness through faith, Cain offered the fruit of his own labor, which demonstrates a lack of true repentance. He, he was showing that I can do this by my work. It didn't cost him anything, really. It was only by his works. The way of Cain represents reliance on good works rather than 
faith in God's appointed means of redemption. Are we trusting in what we do or are we trusting in who we know and who we're in relationship with and who we're seeking and who we love? Are we, are we basing our salvation on Christ? Are we basing on the fact that we are good people, which we know nobody's good except for God. We know that. Ultimately, what happens is the same thing that happens to Cain. When we base our, our salvation on good works, it ends up where we are going to be spiritually estranged and empty. Cain was sent to wander about the world. Pushed away from his family because of what he had done. Balaam. We've talked about Balaam last week. We're going to talk about him again. Balaam's rebellion against God's authority involved compromising his spiritual gifts for financial gain. There's a video out on, uh, on my YouTube channel about um, the saga of Balaam. What happened? Why? What did he do? What he ultimately did, he leads, he leads Balak to actually cause the, the Moabite women to seduce the, the Israelite men. And cause them to sin. The way of Balaam is seen as a temptation to exploit their spiritual influence for personal profit. Now, I'm not saying that somebody who is a who, who has a mega church who has who has is a great preacher and cares for his congregation should not be paid correctly. I mean, there's nothing that we should be. But I, I have problems when I know they're teaching false teachings and they're living in two, three mansions. It, it just doesn't make any sense. But it's, it's using spiritual influence for personal profit. Disregarding the sacredness of the ministry and responsibility to uphold God's standards to exegete Scripture correctly. Balaam's error teaches that rebellion does not go unnoticed by God. We think, my, my kids, my kids think they can do things and get away with it. They don't realize that I see everything that happens. And there are people all over that, that are in their lives who will tell me when something, in fact, they tell on each other all the time. Now there's going to be some things they will get away with and ultimately they will have to deal with the consequences of it. But God sees the rebellion, despite any temporary gain we might get from it, in the long run, it'll destroy us. The doctrine of Balaam also warns us against the notion that we can compromise and we can separate our faith in God from our life. We cannot separate the two. It has to be all-encompassing. Balaam's counsel to corrupt the Israelites' holiness through association with pagan nations, that there's a danger in mis interpreting God's grace. God gives us so much grace. He forgives us, but that doesn't mean that because we know he's going to forgive us that we can go out and we can continue to sin. Paul talks about that. That God's grace is sufficient for all things. It says, so are we to sin so we get more grace? Well, by no means. We don't. Grace is not a license for us to indulge in everything that we can think of under the sun. Because ultimately, it's going to lead to divine judgment. And thirdly, he talks about Korah. Korah was a, a man who rebelled against Moses. Now, understand that when we talk about leadership, and I want to make sure we understand this here, there's godly leadership and there's ungodly leadership. 
And I think that we have a tendency, we think, well, if somebody is a leadership, then God has put them in place. Yes, God has. That does not mean that they are a godly leader. I, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I, I, I've seen very few presidents, including our current one, who I would call a godly leader. Their lifestyle doesn't reflect it. They talk a good show. But God's authority was being disputed, and Moses was the definitive leader. God had shown the people that Moses was the leader he had chosen. So Korah decides to rebel and serves as a a caution to us against disrespecting God-ordained authority. But that authority must be following God, because people ask that question, how is it possible if we're supposed to, supposed to uh, honor our, the authority God put in, uh, above us? How did the early revolutionaries in the American Revolution, how did they justify that they rebelled against the king? Wasn't he put up on the throne by God? Yeah, he was. But he wasn't following God's rules. He wasn't doing things, acting in a godly manner. At that point in time, you have every right to rebel if they're not following God. I pray to God that we don't have that happen in our lifetime here. I don't want to have to do that. But when we disrespect God-ordained authority, we bring about divine retribution. God was definitively affirming Moses's ordained leadership, his authority. And he dealt extremely severely against Korah and his followers. He killed them because of their rebellion. And there's an importance to respecting and submitting to rightful leadership. But we also need to make sure that we keep, make that leadership accountable and remind them that they are accountable to God first and foremost. So these three examples, they all talk about the gravity of rebellion against God's authority in various spheres of life, serving as warnings for believers. We need to be humble. We need to be obedient. We need to be reverent towards God and towards his appointed leaders. And then in Jude 13, or 12 and 13, we get this portrayal of six images of these false teachers that was kind of shed light on how, what they were doing, how it impacts the church. And in reality, as Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. These same things are happening in the church today, and it impacts the church. So this is what Jude says. He says, these are hidden reefs at your love feast. And I'll go through each of these in a moment, so I'll explain them. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept away by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Let's talk about the first thing, the polluted feast. Remember that the communion that we take every month, at the first of every month, is, is considered, it is called a love feast originally. These individuals have come into the local communities. They've been involved in communion. Remember, there are many times I'll say, you know, if, if if you don't feel that you're at a place where you can take communion, then don't. In fact, Scripture says that if you, have, if you know that a brother has something against you, you leave your offering at the altar and you go and resolve it with your brother first and then you come back. I tell people, if, if you have unresolved sin, if you have unresolved conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, you need to resolve that before you take communion because if you don't, you're taking it in a dishonorable way. 
And I can't tell you, you know, if you come to me and tell me what you did and what's going on, I'll tell you you shouldn't take it. But I, that's something you need to decide for yourself because you're going to hold the guilt of it if you do take it in a dishonorable way. But what these people were doing, they were coming in and they were taking it. They were tarnishing the sanctity of the occasion instead of enhancing it. Because think about that. You know, I can come in here and I can, I can have the communion and I can sit and I can take communion by myself. And that's just all fine and dandy. But there's something when we draw together as a family and we take it together. It's no different like at home, you know. Wouldn't you much rather eat dinner with your family? The whole family sitting with you rather than having dinner by yourself or... You know, you may want to sit with your cats. I don't know. I've sat with my cats in days sometimes if I have to. And there are times in my life where I have to eat by myself. It's, i got some time coming up that I'm, I'm going to have to because Beth and the kids have a lot going on. But there's something different about being with family. It enhances the experience. And these people were coming in who were false teachers, and they were not enhancing the experience of communion. Their true nature. But see, the thing about it is he says that they do it without fear, which means people don't know what's going on. So when we do something like that, when we dishonor communion, we're, not, we're affecting everyone, even though they may not even know it. it talks about selfish shepherds, because they, they feed, shepherds feeding themselves. Imagine that if you had a shepherd who was, had a whole flock of sheep and worried more about feeding himself instead of feeding his sheep. He's not a good shepherd. Rather than caring for the flock, these, these apostates, these false teachers, prioritize their own interests over the interest of the flock. And they are exploitive leaders, similar to what is in, we see in Isaiah 56, 11. It says, the dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They all have all turned to their own way, each in his own gain, one and they're empty clouds. I mean, imagine a, a desert scene, and you see off in the distance, and it's, it's dry. It's the dry season, and you see these clouds coming, and they're dark, and they're forming, and they just pass on by. They're waterless. They don't quench. They don't satisfy. They boast of their spiritual prowess. The clouds are dark. They're, they look like they're going to be storms. It's going to rain, and what do they are? They're empty. Any farmer will tell you that's very depressing. If after day after day of clouds forming and then no rain. That's who these are. These, they, they promise liberty that leads only to bondage. They're lifeless trees. We're supposed to be fruitful people. We're supposed to produce fruit. Which, what fruit are we supposed to produce? Other believers. But they're fruitless. Their information does nothing but destroy. It is actually, it's actually rotten fruit. If someone comes to them and says they're struggling, they'll say, well, it's because of you. You're the one with the problem. And maybe that person is the one with the problem. But the problem isn't that, that there's actually something extremely wrong with them. Maybe they just need Jesus. Maybe they just need to realize that, that they're lost. And, and some of these false prophets will teach that, you know, you have to reach this certain level. You reach a certain level of spirituality. And if you don't reach it, oh, you're the one. To, you're, no, wait a minute. We reach salvation, and then we, reach, we are sanctified day by day, but it's not all the same level. They're lifeless, devoid of spiritual life, lacking fruit and lacking roots. They're like turbulent waves. 
Think about this, a tumultuous sea that's just roaring. You know, I've been at the beach when the storm's coming in. It's loud. I mean, beaches are loud anyways, but the waves hitting. But when the storm kicks up, it gets even louder. There's so much noise that, that what they say is of little value. They, they're pridefully, they speak, and they, their promises are empty. And all they leave behind is debris. And they're wandering stars. I think this one is interesting because not only that, it, it talks about, you know, that uh, it says that they are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. If you remember last week, we talked about the, the sons of God, the angels who have, have left their appointed place and they came down and had relations with women and taught things they weren't supposed to. They're being held in chains of darkness until judgment. But these people could be wandering stars who... <laughs> Like shooting stars that flicker briefly, they fade out. They lack consistency and reliability. Verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, here we got Enoch again, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You know, the entirety of our knowledge on Enoch can be found, first of all, in Genesis 5, 18-24. We read, when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years. Could you imagine living 962 years? And he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And then we find in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And then we have the verses we've talked about last week and now this week in the book of Jude. Enoch is identified as the seventh from Adam. To differentiate Enoch from the other Enoch who was in the line of Cain, but Enoch was a righteous figure in a society that was severely steeped in sin. It was a time of moral decay before the flood. Remember Jesus says that at the end times it will be like it was in the days of Noah. We're reaching that point again. He maintained a close relationship with God. He helped have had a life of purity. He served as a prophet. Now understand, Jude is quoting from writings of Enoch, which we don't have. Well, we do, but it's not a, the canon scripture. It's from the book called the Book of Enoch. And I want you to understand, this doesn't mean that Enoch is inspired scripture. But it does mean that in the first century, and the writers of the New Testament actually used it and believed it to be true. But it doesn't mean that it needs to be included or that it's divine inspiration because even Paul, when he was in the Areopagos, when he was debating with the, the thinkers of the day, he used Greek, he used Greek poets to justify and to, to lead them to Christ. But that doesn't mean that all Greek poets are of God. But understand, it was something that influenced the society at that time. And while Enoch's prophecy may initially have been for the flood, it actually it was actually meant. In fact, the book of Enoch says that this is not for this time. 
This is for a time in the future. It's for a time now. Which is interesting because the book of Enoch was lost. We knew about it, but we didn't, know, we didn't have any copies of it. Until it was found in Ethiopia. The Ethiopic church actually has a full copy of it in their canon of scripture. And then we found it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We found copies of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Peter talks about the judgment that was articulated in Enoch in 2 Peter 3. He says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you. Behold, our beloved, in both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. He's talking about Enoch there. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the word that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Besides, in spite of people scoffing the prophecies, and you see it today, it's still, it's going to happen. It actually, their skepticism reinforces the validity of that. There's judgment coming. And I, I, I don't know when it's going to come. Do I think it's going to be soon? Yeah. But what's soon? I don't know. All I know is we're supposed to be watching and we're supposed to be ready. It could come in my lifetime. It may not. My father probably thought it was coming in his lifetime. It did not. People during the plague thought it was their lifetime. It was not. People during the Great Depression thought it was that was the time. It was not. People thought it was going to be in 1900, in 1800, in 1700. It wasn't. We thought 2000 was going to be a disaster. It's the end of the world. It was not. Why? Because God is gracious. He wants more people to come to him. But a judgment is coming. But see, the problem is, is that we see, you're going to see this in, in Jude 16. He's going to highlight the insidious nature of the false teachers who are leading people astray during this time when we need to be exegeting Scripture even more carefully so we know the truth. And this is what he says. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And unfortunately, what they say appeals to ignorant and dissatisfied people leading them astray. But judgment is certain. It's going to happen. But so now what? What do we do with this? Well, first of all, we need to submit to God's authority. I have authority I have to submit to. You have authority you need to submit to. We regularly need to examine our heart. We need to examine our actions and make sure that we are following God's will. Are we following the will of God? We need to submit to his authority in every aspect. We can't separate out this part of our lives and say, I don't have to submit to God here. I have to submit to him in everything. We have to uphold humility and obedience. We have to cultivate this spirit of of humility towards God and towards others. We need to recognize the importance of respecting and submitting to rightful leadership, but also to the church and to all areas of our lives. We need to guard against false teaching. 
It's one of the reasons why I won't. There's certain songs we will not sing. Not because there's anything necessarily wrong with the song, but because the people behind the song are doing things that are ungodly. I could show you some. I could show you some videos of things that are happening in some churches. I'll say, I, and, and sometime I might, I might just pick a Sunday and we might just go through some of these things that are happening. Uh, a pastor riding on a giant break, um, breaking ball across the stage. A pastor on Super Bowl on a Super Bowl Sunday. That's what he's doing. He's riding this huge ball back and forth. What does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with God and with Scripture? It's sad. It truly is sad. And these are the churches that are mega churches. But we need to be vigilant against false teaching, grounding ourselves in God's word and in the truth. We need to study the scriptures diligently. That's one reason why I started recording the book, every book of the Bible. My goal is to go through every chapter of the Bible on recording online. And I, granted, I'm not getting thousands of people, but I'll get 20, 30. Sometimes I'll get 100 people who actually listen to it. Great. At least they're listening to scripture. We need to promote unity and edification. Edification is we need to lift each other up. Watch what you say. Don't talk to people negatively. You know? And and believe me, you're not responsible for them and what they say, but you are responsible for you. And you can choose how you respond to people. Something I've had to tell myself many, many times. I'm responsible for me. But we need to promote unity. We need to live as a witness. Let your life be the testimony. Do people around you know that you're a believer in Christ? Do they know there's something different about you? We need to pray for discernment and for for protection. Pray regularly to recognize false teaching and protection from the schemes of the enemy. Believe me, he is in the church and he is doing things in the church. In in this denomination, he's doing things that I'm concerned about. But I I, I can only do so much. I can't can't go up against everybody because I'm just a pastor. And that's basically what they tell me. But I will fight it every moment I get, and I will talk to whoever I can to tell them my concern about it. So ask God to grant us wisdom and understanding as we navigate the challenges of living in a world that's marked with rebellion and deceit. We need to stay grounded in God's word. Ground yourself firmly in the word of God and the source of truth and all guidance. Talk about it. If you have questions about the Bible? Call me. Text me. Email me. Whatever. I love it. I have a guy online now. He's asking me some questions. Boy, they're tough questions. It's stretching me, and I love it. And I probably will not give him an answer that he likes. But that's okay. I'm going to give him the answer that God says in Scripture. We need to support and encourage our fellow believers. We need to, again, we need to edify each other. Pray for one another. Offer words of encouragement. We also need to remain watchful and ready. We need to stay vigilant, ready at all times for what is happening. Not just what's happening here, but for the coming of Christ. Watching, that's why we're, in Sunday school we're talking about the sign of the times. We need to recognize what's going on. Most of all, we need to share the gospel. Boldly proclaim the gospel to those who have not heard it or have not accepted it. Be a light in the darkness. Share the hope and salvation found in Jesus Christ. If you can't share the hope and salvation that's in Jesus Christ, I've got to wonder if you even know the hope and salvation that's in Jesus Christ. If you had the cure to cancer, you'd be sharing it with everybody. Well, you have the cure to sin. And we need to share it with everyone that God puts in our path. Let's pray.